Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Salted Hash. My name is Steve Reagan, Senior Staff Writer with CSO Online. Today, I'm joined by three more people from Akamai, and we'll be right back. Thanks for coming back. Uh, like I said, we've got a couple of new, three more people from Akamai with me today. And I know you just saw the video with Josh. And the reason why I keep pestering them to, to come out to the studio is because they're actually, they're, their main headquarters is not too far from here. So whenever I'm in town, I get to pester them and occasionally they like to show up. So ta-da, here we are. So we're going to introduce everybody going around the table, starting from my, my right. We've got Dave Lewis down here. Dave, say hi. Hi, I'm Dave Lewis, Global Security Advocate. Right next to him is? Andy Ellis, Chief Security Officer. Andy. And next to me is somebody new to the show. Uh, CSO has, has had Andy and Dave around for a long time. But Charlie Garrow, you are the CTO of Comma Enterprise, right? That's oh, Comma Enterprise. That comma is correct. Enterprise. <laughs> so um, th this is a, an interesting thing for me. <clears throat> And I, I know that uh, all three of you could speak to this, but what some of you might not know is um, last quarter, Akamai finished with just under $500 million in security revenue, which actually makes them a larger security company than many of you watching this might know. Uh, traditionally, when you think of Akamai, they touch the backbone of the internet, well, pretty much all of the internet, and you don't really see them as a security company, but it's actually a pretty substantial piece of what they're doing. So uh, let's let's press on Andy here real quick and tell me a little bit about that. Why is it most people don't know that uh, you know, security is actually a, a pretty decent thing that what you guys are doing? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why people might not know it, but it comes down to the fact that originally we're a performance and availability company. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you go by the, the CIA triad, you know, confidentiality, integrity, availability. So security has always been a thing we do. If you look at some of our big watershed events in 99 and 2000 as we were starting up as a company, you know, whether it was the you know, bet, you know, keeping them online, or keeping the White House online, or keeping Victoria's Secret online. Pick your reason why we're keeping somebody online, but at the end of the day, that's a security play. So some of our earliest offerings around performance and availability, people were buying us for security, although they weren't thinking of it as security. They just said, look, keep my site up. And so we segued that into sort of DDoS mitigation was sort of our original like actual line item security program. And as we were working with our customers, because we sit in line for so much, I like to say we're kind of like the mall of the internet. You know, what do you buy from a shopping mall? You know, everybody comes up with a long list of things. And the answer is, if you're a consumer, you buy nothing from a shopping mall. Businesses buy from a shopping mall the ability to be closer without having to provide all that infrastructure. So the Apple store buys from Simon Malls, like give me some space and provide some mall cops. So I'm just the mall cop of the internet. Most of the time, it's about keeping the doors open. Sometimes it's about keeping the shoplifters out. And so we provide these security services embedded, but we're not really a pure play that all we do is security. Our goal is to enable businesses to deliver on the promise of the hyper-connected world. So can I just call Dave a mall cop from now on? Absolutely. Excellent. I'm aware of that. I like this. We, he's a mall cop. This is a good thing. So, I mean, what do you think about that in the enterprise space? What are your customers coming to you talking about when it comes to security? What are they concerned about the most? 
Uh, I think breaches are still obviously the biggest thing that they're concerned about and trying to I, I, I think, to, to Andy's point, a large portion of my conversations actually start out with why should we think of you as a security company? And that's particularly true of the enterprise side. It's a, a different set of buyers with a different set of challenges. Um, securing your traffic, going outbound or going to your assets inside of your company, as opposed to putting something online where the consumer side comes in, is generally not something people have thought about when it comes to our technologies. So telling this story that over you know nearly 20 years, we had to be a security company to provide all of the performance things that you want. Um, it, it's fairly interesting. Uh, and then having enterprises sort of map those technologies back to their internal assets and realize, oh, right, like, you know, protecting against bots and protecting against SQL injections and protecting against all the things I do for my outside assets. I should probably be thinking about that on the interior as well. Uh, it's interesting conversations we've been having. Uh, I mean, I, I should feel bad considering the fact this is my space. But when I was looking up the financials and it's like $500 million is nothing to sneeze at, that honestly surprised me. I mean, I understood that you guys did security things. I've been talking to you guys for security now for going on five years. So, I mean, it's not, you know, it wasn't a horrible shock to me. But at the same time, that's a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. It's no wonder you can afford to send Dave all over the planet. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it just makes sense. So let's move on to a, a different type of back padding. <clears throat> let's let's talk about uh, some different wins that we've had this year. And uh, I'm going to start with you, Charlie, on this one. But over the last couple of years, security has seen some interesting changes this year in particular. But what kind of wins have you seen in the industry this year? Yeah, uh, one of the things that that I think is a huge win for the industry in general is this transition away from perimeter-based security. So that, that's been a really huge driving theme for us this year, especially in the enterprise group. Uh, and we've seen, you know, over the past year, just the, over the past five, 10 years, the multitudes of breaches and failures that have occurred due to trusting somebody because of their location or an asset because of their location. And so this push with zero trust and software-defined perimeters um, and CARTA, you know, on the Gartner side, this notion of, uh, you know, forcing somebody to authenticate and get authorization per app regardless of their location, you know, this was a concept like five years ago that started to get driven, and no one had a clue uh, what I was talking about when we would bring this up. And this year, there's been some odd inflection point that every company I go to wants to know what our Beyond Corp strategy is or what our Zero Trust strategy. So for me, that's a huge win. Um, it might not be a technological win because this is something that's been around for a little while, but the fact that it's now permeated into that culture enough that we see responses come back, um, I think that's a that's a massive win in general for security. What about uh, identity management and uh, authentication? Right? You, you think those are good wins? Yeah, yeah, I think those are <laughs> definitely very good wins, and they drive really this notion of a beyond corporate zero trust system, right? This notion of being able to establish identity and identity being a pillar of you know what your security policy should be, not just location again or IP address. That is definitely a huge win for us. So the uh, the the in joke there with uh, the identity management will just. You'll have to figure that one out yourselves. Andy, what, what are some of the wins uh, you've seen this year? So I think as we look at wins in security, as Charlie noted, it's not about like the new technology that just popped up, right? Adoption takes a long time. It's about that shift in mindset. And I think the biggest win I'm, I'm really seeing is people starting to understand that the password is not safe. 
And so I think in the last year, we've seen a huge uptick in adoptions of both password managers and two-factor authentication. And I'm not going to sit here and say, like, that's the success point. All we have to do is get everybody to use a password manager so that they stop reusing over-the-network passwords. But it's the first start. You know, the place we need to get to is obviously a world where we do not trust passwords over the network. We need to get out of that model, be in a model where we have stronger authentication. This is a hard problem. And where we understand that you know, security models based in the 1980s, where you know, humans walked up to a computer and authenticated themselves to the computer, don't necessarily apply to the 21st century, where humans with a computer authenticate themselves over a network to another computer or another set of computers. And so, but I'm very optimistic that people are starting to recognize that the password is part of the problem. It's all right, Dave. Go ahead, beat up on my table. Sorry I appreciate that. that. No, it, it's it's all good. <laughs> so you were you were talking about the authentication thing, and that actually reminded me of a conversation I was having with my uh, producer Chris, who's behind the camera over there. Wave wave for everybody, Chris. Hi, how are you? And so he recently uh, switched over to a new password manager, and one of the features that he truly truly likes is the fact that on his phone he can authenticate with his fingerprint, and that just how far we've come with passwords now to where biometrics is now second nature to most consumers to whereas what 10 years ago bio, biometrics was a, a fancy you know future type of, of security measure that only the 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 uber geeks had I mean most of a most of the public didn't want to authenticate by swiping their fingerprints but most of us 10 years ago were going yay. <laughs> look what I can do so I, I, I actually I think that's been a, a really big win I would agree with you on that one. But I'm curious about your answer, Dave, because you travel so much yes. and you, you see, you know, not just from a business perspective, but like the average Congo or you see so many things. I mean, what stood out to you this year as a win? What stood out to me this year as a win was actually not something you would typically see as a win. And this was one thing that our security researchers found called the WireX botnet. This was a botnet that was built out with malware that was injected into various Android devices. And this created a denial of service botnet using mobile devices. And where we've seen, you know, different types of malware and different types of mobile platforms before, hadn't seen something to this shape and scale. It was a case where even uh, when the device was in a resting mode or turned off or in standby, it would still be launching denial of service attacks. And I thought that this was actually a really excellent example of a lesson to be learned. This was a real opportunity to build on something saying, look, we have given a lot of lip service to mobile security in the past, and you know that has been shifting, but this is a great example where we can say, look, this is a great win in that it is an excellent lesson to be used to help address these problems going forward. Nice. So we're going we're gonna to stick with you for a minute. I'm not sure. picking on you. Um, <clears throat> going back again to the the uh, the travel thing, uh, as some of you watching might know, Dave uh, wrote and contributed to CSO for many, many years, and you're still contributing to Forbes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what is it then uh, here this year that you've seen that uh, had a, what, what security topic outside of the, the Android stuff has your attention? Like if you were to, to, to pick something and say, I've been watching this, not entirely sure what to make of it, but it's cool. What What is that for you? For me, and a lot of the, the travel-related things, it's all wrapped around the security of mobile devices again. 
Um, something as simple as I was in Berlin last week, and there was a gentleman there that was obviously in a state of distress trying to figure out where he was supposed to be. And I asked him, I said, you know, do you speak German? Do you speak French? Do you speak English? And he was shaking his head no, and he held up his passport, and it was a Spanish passport. And I was like, okay, I don't know Spanish, but then I realized, oh, I was like, wait a minute, I used my Google Translate. And we ended up having a conversation back and forth using that. And it's those sort of things where it's a huge benefit, but I also worry about things like when we tie back to the WireX botnet, these, this was built out using applications that seemed legitimate to the user that were infected with malicious software. And I worry that in certain cases that, especially for travelers, that they could be you know, monitored by malicious third parties and not being aware of it because of code that was injected into an application. And this is one of those things where I, want, I worry about making sure that we have a stringent vetting process to make sure applications are secure before they are provided to the wider audience like two-factor authentication, again, mobile devices. And in that particular case, it's one of those things where, yes, a lot of people are starting to use it, but nowhere near the numbers I would love to see. I would love to see it where my folks would be using two-factor authentication for their devices as well, because that helps limit the risk. It doesn't, uh, doesn't get rid of the risk, but it sure limits it. What about you, Andy? So I think the uh, a big uh, thing I'm watching that's interesting is, is somewhat related to that you know that third party app, but it's that ever present surveillance state that we've sort of entered. I had the uh, the, the pleasure to be a guest lecturer at a grad program on cybersecurity, and it was the day of uh, oral arguments in one of the cases around whether the uh, FBI could get without a warrant your network data, so you know where you were. And the number of people in the room who said, but I've done nothing wrong. Why should it matter if the FBI gets this data? Wow. And it's an interesting because when you, when you look at that, our, our current mental model around Fourth Amendment rights in this country is often based around the privacy rights rather than the property rights. Right? Do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? Uh, and the answer probably at this point is no. Right? You know that you know, whether you're using AT&T or Verizon or Rogers or T-Mobile, you know, that they know where you are at all times because you carry your phone. And so if you don't expect privacy from them, why would you expect privacy from anywhere else? Um, I was at least heartened that one of the oral arguments covered the property rights, that these are still your papers, that maybe it shouldn't be inspected. But we're sort of shifting sort of the, the social and cultural norms in our country and in the world, frankly, around you know, how much privacy individuals have and what people can do with that. And I think we see sort of partial attempts to look at whether it's regulation or law or even just policy to try to you know, corral this. But the, the sort of the cat's out of the bag. You know, maybe this is you know, Pandora's box that we've opened. Maybe the last thing inside we can, we can get out. But right now, I think we're going into a world that most of us can't predict. So let's, let's hang with this for a second. Do you think then that that shift is generational? Meaning we have been around long enough to where we remember a world without phones that monitor our every move and location. We know what it's like to have to rely on quarters and nickels and dimes to make a phone call or dialing 1-800-COLLECT and during that three seconds to record your name, mama met the mall, can pick me up, it's time to go, and hanging <laughs> up the phone. I mean, we understand what this is like, but yet everybody coming after us, and particularly um, in my kids, my oldest is 21, my youngest is 16, going to get his license next week. I mean, they've Good grown luck. up in a world, uh, right? <laughs> they've grown up in a world to where these phones are not only common, but the functions and features and convenience they offer, it's expected. It's not a 
to them, being able to surf the web isn't a convenience. I mean, think about it. When we had our first smartphones and the four of us sitting at our table being able to open up a web page or check our email, you know, I remember being able to pull my corporate email on my BlackBerry was like, I love the future. I can't believe it. This is amazing. But now these, when, when they get their phones, being able to surf the web, it's, yeah, so... I mean, do you think that's what it is? It's generational, though? I think that's part of it. You know, you see this this evolution. Um, you know, I, I love Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. You know, binge watch that on Netflix. And, you know, one of my favorite commentaries from somebody who was, you know, a little younger than I am, they were like, you know, I can I can suspend disbelief for this whole, you know, Demogorgon fantasy monster showing up. <laughs> but, like, how does a parent wake up in the morning and not know if their kid even came home from school last night? And I'm like, that's the world I grew up in. Like I got up in the morning, I got myself to school. I came home, I fed myself, I went to bed. And like, that was a different universe. I woke up and got kicked out of the house. I mean, don't come back until the streetlights came street lights on. Yeah. 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 Did your parent be on the front porch yelling for you to come Yeah, home? no, you knew, you knew because you would hear mom from like two blocks away and at first, you would hear your first name, but if you heard your middle name, you were already in trouble. <laughs> you knew to tell your friends you weren't coming back. I mean, so I, I, I'll pass it over to you, Charlie. What do you think? Do you think this is generational? Uh, I don't. I don't buy that it is. The dimension is just generational. I, I think largely, if you are a millennial and you grew up in this, this was the world that you knew. You didn't know this other world where privacy mattered. Um, but I think uh, I look at my parents and the amount of information that they're willing to give up to get services. I think in general, society has accepted that your private data has become the commodity for which you get services for free. And they enjoy you know, having access to Facebook and being able to post pictures online, et cetera, so much because of the ease of which information can be shared amongst people that they don't really think of the repercussions of how much data they're giving away. So I think generationally, yes, it's probably more prevalent because that's a society, they never knew the society where you go out on the porch and your mom is yelling, you know, because the lights are out and where, you know, are you back yet? But I think it it crosses across all boundaries. I think it's people who don't, people who are willing to accept that payment of personal information and privacy in order to get other things that they you know, enjoy more, that's very psychological. And I think that that's across all generations. So I, I've asked both of them, I'll give you the same question. What what security topics got your interest this year? Yeah, so mine uh, is a little bit different. They were, theirs were very you know, dreary. I think mine is more technological based. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm a you know, computer scientist and a programmer uh, by heart and by trade. And uh, containerization has been a huge thing for me over the last uh, few years, uh, you know, and uh, seeing how that has been applied to security um, has been a trend that I've you know, been following very closely. And I think what we've seen this past year is people have accepted that generally the model of containerizing processes on your system doesn't work operationally. You know, in very strict environments like banks or government, you can use a model where uh, every process that starts up is locked down and authenticated to the services it goes to. But in general, it doesn't work. And so there's this notion now of moving a lot of those services out to the cloud and doing things like browser isolation, where it's you know maybe not as brittle as when it's on the desktop, but pushing services, especially the services that are most dangerous, like browsing, out to a cloud service where it's doing the more risky behaviors and just sending down like an image or you know a pixel transfer or just DOM uh, that's been expanded and cutting the JavaScript down. And a lot of those points of contact, it's very interesting. It's something I don't think... Akamai has any particular you know, interest of getting into, but it's something I'm watching very closely. Because I think if you were to go back in time, um, you know, back, say, 40, 50 years ago, and you said to somebody, you're going to be in an environment where you're constantly threatened and attacked, design two systems that talk to each other. 
you would never design it the way it is today, right? Like yeah. that was not a consideration, or maybe 60 years ago, that was not a consideration when we were designing sockets and transfer, transport layers, et cetera. Um, I think you would probably design it much closer to a containerized mechanism mm -hmm. and trying to shoehorn that in in a way that provides security but also is usable, which is the most important thing here in security because if it's difficult to use, people aren't going to you know, apply it. The advances in that in this past year has been exciting for me. So to answer my own question, I think for me, honestly, the, the biggest interest I, I, I've seen this year is actually based on the, the authentication side of things, there's been a real push to get people into the password managers and to, you know, even though SMS as a, a two-factor isn't the best solution, it's still a good solution to have for a majority of the people and, you know, getting over those hurdles. I, I, I've really been fascinated by that discussion because it's starting to work, I think. And one of the reasons it is is because there have been so many massive data breaches in the news that people are seeing these passwords leaked left and right and they they see you know like the top password list of 2016 or 2017 was blah 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 and then they recognize my password's kind of like that and it, it stands out to them um so that's that's been my my really big thing but my worry is we're gonna fall back into the old habit so we had the, the problem of everybody keeping really weak what they thought was a hard-to-guess password because humans are really horrible at doing random. And so we made a password that's hard for us to remember, but to steal the, the premise from the comic, it's really easy for a machine to crack. And now we have password managers that makes it impossible for us to remember and really hard for a machine to crack. But how long until that changes to where now we're back in the same boat to where your password manager is generating, you know, traditionally kind of weak passwords and they could still be cracked depending on what's being, you know, it, I'm worried that we'll, we're not going to innovate past that. I guess is my point. We're not going to, we're going to get stuck into that boat again. I'm not as worried about that. Cryptographically, we've got a lot of schemes that, you know, numerically and statistically you could say, um, you know, it's very easy to generate things that are you know, almost uncrackable as it were, right? Uh, the thing that worries me more is the architecture that password vaulting companies use. Uh, you're putting all the keys to everything you have in one place. And there's lots of different ways to do this. You know, you, there there are password vault managers that push everything down to you that were popularized on Linux like 10 years ago. Um, but most companies that we trust with that don't do that. And they put these things in a cloud. And so the question is, if, if you're going to fundamentally put all of your authenticators in one place, if you're a malicious actor, who are you going to go after now? I'm going to go after the the password vaulting companies, mm -hmm. right? So the security that they apply around those things concerns me much more, right? I think password vaulting is a is a great technology. It's a huge step forward. Now I'm concerned about the people who are holding the keys to the vault. Um, are they applying the best security practices? What do you two think about that? So I think Charlie's really tagged on one of the risks to worry about. The step that I, I hope we get to is the recognition by you know, the server-side companies, the people who hold your password, that they understand that what's authenticating you is the password vault, right? Because then we can move past this. Because the point is to say, let's get rid of the password entirely. If I authenticate to my password vault and my password vault authenticates to you, well, why is it a password vault and not just an authentication agent? Right? Why can't it manage you know, client-side certificates for me? It can do interesting crypto. If you want to use a password, hey, let's rotate it every week. 
I don't have to remember it, but provide the APIs to do so. The challenge right now is we still see a lot of people who are doing you know, web, so web server design saying things like, oh, we don't want you to copy and paste anything into your password field, so you have to hand type them. Right? And some of that's coming from a legacy world where there's one threat they worry about you know, you know, uh, malware that's going to paste in, but at the same time they're actually blocking out this technology that is the step we need to take. And I think Charlie's right to say, hey, we need to make sure that, that that's your keys to the kingdom. Um, but it's better keys to the kingdom than you have what you have right now, which is your browser itself and you know everything on your laptop. And I look at it as an incremental win. I agree with both of these guys. This is, is you know you have to go through the steps to get to a better place. And because humans are you know predictable by nature, you know we have opposable thumbs, but we still do silly things like you know fluffy bunny one two three is our password on our banking and our Amazon website and so on and so forth. Were you looking over my shoulder tonight? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might have been, might have been. But, you know, this leads to credential stuffing when these data breaches happen. And then the attackers can take those passwords and reuse them on other sites. So having unique passwords for, like in my own password vault, I have like 700 different accounts. And there's no way I could ever remember that. And FluffyBunny123 on all of those would not be a good idea, especially when you track them against websites like Troy Hunt's Have I Been Pwned? And you can see all these different data breaches and check that, oh, yeah, I was actually involved in several of these data breaches. So, yes, I, I see that as an incremental step. Uh, I don't see it as a be-all, end-all, of course, but it is definitely better than where we are now. Excellent. So, guys, thanks a lot for coming to hang out with us today in the studio. I really appreciate it. Um, if anybody wanted to look you up online and, and track you on various social medias, where can they find you? I stay as far away from social media as possible. So <laughs> come to the Akamai site and uh, look for uh, me look there. Look for you there, Andy. Probably find me most on Twitter as CSO Andy, but be prepared for a lot of Patriots tweeting going on. It's way nice. too much Patriots tweeting. Nice, Dave. <laughs> and my handle is Gattaca on Twitter. And uh, yeah, just a whole lot of me just getting upset with people giving me uh, unsolicited emails. <laughs> Thanks a lot for hanging out. Once again, my name is Steve Reagan with CSO Online. This has been Salted Hash, and we'll see you next week.